Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. In 1914, Albert Charles Houghton had it all. A prominent businessman and a respected local politician, Houghton enjoyed a reputation throughout New England as a man whose influence extended well beyond the bounds of his small town in the Berkshires. He also had a large and loving family with his wife and daughters, most of whom had married and were starting families of their own. Houghton lived in the grandest house in North Adams. He had everything until he didn't. A terrible accident one summer day changed the entire course of the Houghton family's history, leaving behind a legacy of tragedy and a mansion full of harrowing memories. That mansion is also full of ghosts, the restless spirits of those who can't forgive themselves and those who can't forget. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road.
Today, North Adams is the smallest city in Massachusetts. Nestled in the Berkshire Mountains of Western Mass, the city is best known as the home of Mass Mocha, the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. But once, North Adams was a center of manufacturing during the Industrial Revolution, topping out at a population of 24,000 in 1900. A.C. Houghton wasn't just an important figure in the history of North Adams. He was seminal in the founding of the city itself, which was incorporated in 1878 and became an official city in 1895. Over the course of his career, he served as bank president, railway director, and president of Arnold Printworks, which is now the home of Mass Mocha. In addition, he served as a delegate at the 1892 Democratic National Convention and as a commissioner to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, and was a trustee of both Williams College and Boston University. Houghton was also the first mayor of North Adams, taking office in 1896. Just after the end of his first term, he commissioned the Houghton Mansion, which would be the third home for his family in the city. The 17-room home was built in the neoclassical revival style, painted off-white with gray-blue accents on the windows and columns. The mansion featured Greek architectural details like etchings and engravings and a roof of Spanish tiles. Inside, Italian marble fireplaces reflected the glow of fires on mahogany-paneled walls and ceilings. According to the Ghosts of the Berkshires, the house was intended to be a place where Houghton could enjoy happy times with his beloved family as he retired from public life. Outside in the yard, the Houghton Mansion has a large rock wall separating the yard from the side street. The wall was constructed from rocks removed from the Hoosack Tunnel, which connects North Adams to a neighboring town. Nicknamed the Bloody Pit, the Hoosack Tunnel has its own dark history. More than 200 workers died during its construction, and people to this day report lantern-holding apparitions and mysterious voices. Houghton's connection to the tunnel goes beyond building materials. For a time, he was the state director of the Fitchburg Railroad, which owned the Hoosack Tunnel. At the time the mansion was built, the Houghton family consisted of A.C. Houghton, his wife Cornelia, and daughters Florence, Susan, Alice, and Mary. Their first child, Laura, had died at the age of three in 1871. Their remaining daughters were grown, and only unmarried Mary moved into the mansion with her parents. In 1914, an event occurred that would change the family's fate forever. In the spring of that year, Houghton bought his first automobile, a seven-passenger Pierce Arrow touring vehicle he tasked John Witters, the family's servant of more than 40 years, with learning to drive the car. But Witters did so reluctantly, citing his age and his poor health as reasons he should not be the family's chauffeur. But Houghton insisted. According to a contemporary newspaper account, it is stated that the driver had taken up the duties of chauffeur under protest, but that his employer had insisted that inasmuch as Witters had been such an excellent and careful coachman, that he would also be a careful auto driver. It is also stated that Witter's health had not been of the best during the spring and summer. On the morning of August 1st, 1914, the North Adams Evening Transcript reported, Houghton and his youngest daughter, 38-year-old Mary, along with family friends Dr. Robert Hutton and Mrs. Sybil Hutton, took the car on a pleasure trip to Bennington, just across the border in Vermont. But the car would never reach its destination. At 9.30 a.m. in Pownall, Vermont, the car ascended a steep hill, 
which was known to locals as a dangerous place for cars. On the road, a construction crew and team of horses blocked the right side of the road. The Bennington Evening Banner reported that there have been several narrow escapes there. The old railing was taken down while the road was being repaired and a new one was to have been put up when the work was completed. John Witters pulled to the left of the road to avoid the construction. The wheel of the car went onto the soft shoulder, causing Witters to lose control. Some witnesses believe that he mistook the accelerator of the car for the brake, and some suggested that a cloud of dust impaired his vision. Though the vehicle was only going 12 miles per hour, the driver wasn't able to regain control. The car slid down a steep embankment, flipping three times and rolling 50 feet before landing in a pasture. Robert Hutton, Sybil Hutton, A.C. Houghton, and John Witters were thrown from the car. Witters and Robert Hutton only sustained minor injuries, but Houghton suffered a fractured right shoulder. Sybil Hutton was crushed by the vehicle and died at the scene. She was 33 years old. Mary Houghton was trapped in the back seat of the crushed vehicle and had to be removed by rescuers. The Bennington Evening Banner reported that she was badly crushed by the car and her spine was fractured. By 3 p.m., the 37-year-old Mary had passed away. According to the North Adams Evening Transcript, the area was so dangerous that many of those present after it occurred said that they were surprised that a catastrophe had not happened there before. The news of the accident shocked the town's residents, who gathered together in mourning. The North Adams Evening Transcript reported that news of the accident spread like wildfire throughout the city and groups of prominent citizens gathered on Main Street with anxious faces and expressions of sorrow upon their countenances. One newspaper described Mary as leading a quiet life of self-sacrifice, explaining how she devoted herself to caring for her father, whose health had been precarious for some years past. Another account theorized that Houghton might not survive much longer because of the ordeal. The Bennington Banner wrote, The shock of the accident and what he has sustained in the death of a favorite daughter have been so depressing that a fatal termination would not be at all surprising. But the first to die in the fallout of the accident would be John Witters. Though he was under the watch of family gardener James Hines, who had stayed the night with Witters out of concern for his mental health, he was able to slip away from the gardener's watch. At 4 a.m. on the morning of August 2, 1914, the day following the accident, Witters ended his own life, shooting himself in the head with a revolver in the basement of the mansion's stables. He was 63 years old. According to the Brattleboro Daily Reformer, Witters brooded over the results of the accident, remarking over and over and over again that he could not live as he had caused the death of Miss Mary and her friend. The Berkshire County Eagle reported that he continually kept saying, I wish it was I and not the girls. Witters was buried in the Houghton family plot. Just nine days later, A.C. Houghton passed away in his home. His health had already been failing, and the injuries he sustained in the accident, coupled with the magnitude of his losses, must have surely contributed to his demise. Some said Houghton died of a broken heart. He was 70 years old when he passed. The whole town of North Adams mourned their former mayor. On August 13, 1914, the day of his funeral, much of the town shut down. According to the Berkshire Evening Eagle, the Merchants Association attended in a body and all of the public buildings of the city are draped in mourning. The city hall, public library, fire stations, banks and stores, as well as the transcript office, present a somber appearance with their long streamers of black and white bunting. 
The sole topic of conversation yesterday was the big things that Mr. Houghton had accomplished for the city and her people during his lifetime and the loss the city had sustained in his death. The stores of the city closed at two o'clock and will remain closed until evening. The Arnold Print Works, of which he was head, and the Hussack Cotton Mills, which he formerly owned, closed at noon and remained closed for the day. The wheels in all the factories of the city will be stopped from 4 to 4.05. The public library closed this afternoon from 2 to 5 out of respect for the late ex-mayor. The reason all the machines stopped in the city at 4 p.m. was because that was the precise moment of Houghton's internment into the ground. The North Adams Evening Transcript described these as unusual marks of respect. After the accident, one of Houghton's surviving daughters, Florence, moved into the Houghton mansion with her husband, William Gallup, who had been a business partner of her father. Florence looked after her mother, Cordelia Houghton, until the older woman died in 1916. The family sold the home to the Lafayette Freemasons in 1927, who added another 10,000 square feet to the mansion's 15,000 square feet for a Masonic temple, which was dedicated in 1929. In 2017, the Masons sold the building due to financial concerns. It was purchased by hotel developer Benjamin Svensson for $160,000. Today, the mansion looks much the same as it did in its heyday, with the exception of some peeling paint. The house isn't currently in use and it sits empty, or I should say it's empty of living inhabitants. The Houghton Mansion has been described as one of the most haunted houses in all of New England by a regional PBS station. Over the years, many people have reported unusual incidents there, which are largely attributed to the aftereffects of the terrible auto accident that befell the Houghton family. Some also speculate that a curse may have been placed on the Houghton family as a result of the Hussack tunnel rocks used for the house's stone wall. Multiple Masons claim to have paranormal experiences during the building's 90 years as a Freemason temple. Two Masons spending the night there once heard the door of the building open and shut, followed by the sound of heavy footsteps. They assumed the sounds were being made by fellow Masons, but when the men went to greet them, no one was there, and there were no footprints in the snow outside. Masons had such striking encounters in the mansion that in 2004, Masons Josh and Nick Mantello started a ghost hunting group, Berkshire Paranormal, in response to the experiences they had at the Houghton Mansion. Masons have reported seeing darting shadows in the temple area. Some who have had experiences in the home claim that if you wrap out the opening rhythm of shave and a haircut in the temple, a spirit will respond with two knocks for two bits. I think that's a method that we perfected on Ghost Hunters, by the way. Visitors to the mansion have often claimed to have seen Mary Houghton on the upper floors and to hear her voice. According to the Haunted Places, Visitors also claim to have felt an overwhelming sense of sadness at Mary Houghton's room. Ghost of the Berkshires writes that when sitting in one particular chair, visitors often claim to be touched by an unseen hand. A.C. Houghton has been frequently seen and heard in the house, especially in his bedroom. There, his bedroom door is said to open and close spontaneously, and items in his room are sometimes moved when no one is present. According to ParanormalHotspots.com, when AC's spirit is present, he is often perceived by many sensitives and psychics as an angry spirit and does not wish to have strangers in his house. Former driver John Witters has been spotted in the house. He's said to take the form of shadows throughout the space. The closet doors in what's thought to have been his third-floor bedroom are also said to move on their own, 
and some say they've heard footsteps on the servant's stairs leading up to his room. The same deep sadness felt in Mary's room has also been reported here. At least one paranormal group has claimed to record an EVP that said, get out, in Witters' bedroom. In the kitchen, people have reported seeing ghostly footprints on the just-mopped floor. According to the Haunted Places site, the basement is said to be one of the most haunted spots in the entire property. In particular, the ghost of a young girl can often be seen walking across the basement and fading into the walls. The girl has been heard giggling and murmuring and has been seen peeking around doors. She's even a little bit of a prankster. Some have claimed that she's tapped them on the legs, pulled their pant legs, or tugged their hair. The Masons reported seeing her dark shape moving around the basement, as well as small, colorful sparks of light flashing about them in the dark that they have nicknamed Sparklies. One witness, when she appeared on Ghost Hunters, had a different story to share. She said she felt very uncomfortable, like the dark spirit didn't want me down here. Now, I know someone who claims he had the most powerful paranormal experience of his life at the Houghton Mansion. To this day, he counts it as one of the most incredible locations he has ever investigated, and he has some great insight and experiences to share. Up next, we'll be talking to paranormal researcher Tim Weisberg. That's coming up after the break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Now, I am joined by uh, one of my oldest, not age-wise, but longest, I don't know, <laughs> one, of my, one of the first people I met, really, in the paranormal field, uh, Mr. Tim Weisberg, who is, you're a, you're a researcher, you're a, a host, you're a writer, like, you've done it all. So welcome, Mr. Weisberg. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, yeah, I, just a jack-of-all-trades, whatever you need in the paranormal, I'm your guy. There have been a number of times over the years where I text you the most random stuff and you always come through for me. <laughs> so I super appreciate you. Um, now, I think I knew you because I'd been on the show when I lived in California, but I can't remember the first time I met you, but it has been, I think it's been like 17 or 18 years. It's been a long time. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what, what's great about it is that we were able to kind of forge that friendship across the country so that when we finally did meet in person, it, it didn't seem weird at all. No, not at all. <laughs> we just knew we were weird and that was enough. <laughs> right. And, and and that general weirdness that we have, you know, it, it doesn't really work for everybody else. But when you get somebody else that has that weirdness, it becomes like a magnet. Well, I'm glad you're still a part of my world, as Ariel says. But anyways, <laughs> so I reached out to you when it came to Houghton Mansion, just because I guess it would be considered almost a local haunt for us because it's in Massachusetts. It's a few hours away. And I know you've investigated it a number of times. Now, I had this kind of weird Mandela effect thing happening before today. Like, I, I really felt like I had filmed an episode of Ghost Hunters there, and I didn't. <laughs> like, I, I full like had this memory of, of, I must've filmed an episode of ghost hunters there. Now I've been there, but I definitely have never filmed there, but I think you've probably been there more than I have. And so I, I can't recall what kind of experiences I've had, but I know you've had many experiences there. Well, what I liked about the Houghton mansion and I, you know, I'm going to speak of it in the past tense because we don't get to investigate it anymore, but it, it is still there. And mm-hmm. what I, what I liked about it was that it was a place where the paranormal was welcomed, which it's not like uh, some of these other historic spots where we're kind of forcing ourselves in as paranormal researchers to say, you know, please, his- historical society, give us a chance. It was a place that was being run by paranormal investigators who also happened to be Freemasons. And so you really had an easy connection with the spirits that were there because they knew what you were there for and they knew what you were doing. Right. And I do remember that part of it. And I haven't touched on actually what happened to the mansion. Now, it is privately owned now, correct? It is. So a few years ago, it went up for sale. So the Freemasons decided that, from my understanding, they decided they didn't want to keep up with this building anymore. Because in addition to the lodge that was built inside of it, which was huge unto itself, you know, there was a lot of space associated mm-hmm. with this, and I'm sure a lot of property taxes as well. So they wanted to get kind of get out from under it, and they put it up for sale. A number of people in the paranormal had talked about trying to buy it. I know John Zaffis had looked into moving his museum into it, which would have yeah. been a perfect fit, but mm-hmm. it seemed like the town wasn't really that down with that idea. So it ended up being sold to, uh, I think it's a, an art organization that hasn't really done anything with it yet. So as far as I know, those ghosts are still wandering those halls waiting for someone to come in and talk to them. Right. I always wonder, like, what happens to the ghosts at that point? Are they, like, thankful that we're not there talking to them anymore? Or do they get lonely? Or like, do you have any theories on that? Like, what do you think is happening in the Houghton Mansion uh, with the spirits right now? I mean, I would say that in general, any haunted location that, that sits dormant for a while, I wouldn't worry too much about it because I'm sure time for the spirit world is much different than it is for us. But at a place like Houghton Mansion where they were coming all the time and not just for, you know, big investigations and events and things like that, but just Josh and Nick and the and the people who were investigating on a regular basis, they were always in there. So it's I'm sure to them, it's like, you know, losing your loved ones all over again. You know, if somebody walked in there right now to investigate, either two things would happen. Either you would get nothing, absolutely nothing, or you'd be overwhelmed with activity. And I think based on the way that the Houghton Mansion has always been, it would be the latter. Now, as far as activity goes, what are some of the more common occurrences that people report there? A lot of people that go there report encountering what they feel are the spirits of of A.C. Houghton and his daughter because they feel like 
uh, you know, they would be the ones that would be most likely there. And of course, they will always have these spirits, uh, these encounters where they feel that it's Mary in her bedroom or, uh, you know, AC in his study in the library downstairs. And of course, you would expect that to happen. But what I find is one of the more intriguing ideas is when people go into the room that they believe was John Witter's room, or at least maybe the room where, where he committed suicide, um, or where, where his spirit went after he committed suicide, I should say, they, they feel like that room has this overwhelming heaviness. So while you might feel welcomed in the rest of the house, that's a room that is very foreboding. And, and so it actually takes a certain reserve in a person to be able to go in there and deal with that. And I've been in lots of rooms where tragedies have happened. I've laid in the spot where Abby Borden's body was found and all those kind of things. And I've never felt the kind of heaviness that you feel in the room that is associated with John Witters. And I think that's because the guilt that he feels is still palpable all this time later. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, even if his kind of spirit is not there, like what he went through, obviously, like he, it was tremendous for him. And I do like I, I feel like sometimes those um, those emotional scars just kind of cause activity or cause hauntings or, or you can feel them, you know, years and years later still. Now, when it comes to John Witters, besides that kind of heaviness, what sort of activity do you think would be associated with him in the location? A lot of people, of course, will point to the story of the, seeing a light in the window of that room and which I can tell you, having verified, having been in that room, there wasn't electricity being run into that room, at least at the time that I was investigating there, you know, in the 2012-13 era, there was no electricity running to that room. So for a light to be seen in the window from there with nobody else in the building, I would think that that has to be something uh, that is at least of interest, if not totally paranormal. And that, I think, is a sign to me that he's still trying to show that he's a good person. That's that right. to me, that's what that light means. It's like, please don't, don't judge me on what happened in the, in the final days of my life. Please judge me on my entire life overall. And I feel so bad about that because nobody blames John Witters for what happened except John Witters. Yeah. I mean, if there was ever a reason for someone to haunt a place or to stay behind, like he has it, um, you know, there's always that kind of unfinished business, that feeling of guilt, like, he is kind of the textbook ghost, uh, for lack of a better term. But I know you've had personally some pretty profound experiences there. Maybe one of your most profound experiences there. Do you want to elaborate on that? Absolutely. Well, I mean, first of all, we went there. I'll be, you know, totally upfront. We went for an event on a Saturday. So this is this is a little bit different than the person who might you know be going in there for the average paranormal investigation. As you know, you know, things can happen and and uh, you don't always have full control of the situation. So we know that we're going to get in there with about I think there was like 50 or 60 people that were coming to this event. But the night before, we had all got into town the night earlier, and we all met up for dinner, those of us who were like the guests and the people who were running it and everything. And Josh Mantello says to us all, would you like to go and check out the house tonight before there's a big group there and you can actually do a real investigation? And if there was maybe a dozen, 15 people sitting around the table, half of them said, nah, we're just going to go back to the hotel. And I couldn't believe it. Like, what do you mean? You've got, you've got the hotel mansion to yourself. This is perfect. So some of us all went over there. and. The building lit up for us in a, like I've never seen in terms of activity, including as we're getting this walking tour from from Josh and Nick Mantello, we're in 
widder's room. And as they're talking and telling the story of what people have experienced there, a voice came from the closet. And this mumbled, garbled, kind of like voice that everybody could hear. And some of the folks that were with us, of course, immediately ran over to the closet to see what was going on. Like, is there a tape recorder? Is Josh playing a trick on us? Because, you know, we, we're, we're the new people here. I could see them <laughs> pull something on us. And when we opened up the closet, there's nothing in there. And, and Josh and Nick are saying, no, no, we would never do something like that. And we're trying to figure out what the source of this could be. And we can't find anything. So we finish off the tour and we get to see the entire mansion inside and out, even the parts that people don't normally go into. And then we're all in the library downstairs kind of hanging out. And I heard a, a noise come from the, the very top floor, the third floor. And I walked over to the grand staircase and everybody that's in the house is all downstairs. Nobody could have gotten into the house where well, I'm standing at the bottom of the staircase. And I just yell up the stairs. Is there anybody up there? And a female voice says from the very top, no. And then everybody kind of laughed, but uh, really that just proved to us that there was somebody else there that, you know, we couldn't see. That is wild. So sounds like uh, she did not want you there. <laughs> if it was Mary, uh, Houghton, I, I could kind of understand that. Yeah. You know, then, you know, why would you want these people poking around, talking about what happened to you all the time? But yeah. You consider what, how many people must have gone through that building, how many, you know, obviously with the Freemasons, it is a fraternal organization. It is a male uh, oriented organization, but there are women associated with that. They have the, you know, anybody that ever has been a rainbow girl or any of that, those things are all associated with the uh, Masons. So there would have been women in the building. So it could have been anyone, but I, I'd like to think that it was kind of Mary just saying, Hey guys, I'm, I'm done for tonight. You come back tomorrow. Sometimes I feel like when we're investigating these poor people become defined by their end. You know, it's almost like the lives that they led before this happened or the memories that they made in these these buildings, all of that becomes null and void. And I, I, that's why I try to encourage investigators to not focus so much on the end but focus on the part, the living part, you know, because none of us want to be thought of, you know, as, as this poor tragic family that this terrible thing happened to. There's so many other facets of their lives that were much more important to them, I'm sure. And so maybe um, over time, they start getting frustrated when people come in and just kind of keep rehashing uh, what happened to the family. Yeah. And when you think about it, I mean, every investigator that comes in, it's their first interaction with, with say, Mary Houghton. But for Mary Houghton, it's her 10,000th invest, uh, you know, investigation that she's been part of. So for her to have to keep asking, answering that question all the time, you know, tell us about the car crash, Mary. Tell us what was going through your mind when the car crashed, Mary. Like that is, it's got to be not only, you know, tragic to have to relive that, but it's also going to get kind of monotonous as well. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I think that's actually a very valuable lesson for investigators or people looking to investigate is, you know, don't just study what happened, like wh how, what the end result was, but study like the entire life of someone that you were trying to reach out to, because odds are most people aren't walking in with that knowledge. I mean, that can be the difference between them interacting with you or not, you know, especially in the case of the Houghtons, they do have such interesting history associated with them besides this terrible car crash. Right. And when you think about the fact that that house was built um, basically on the sweat that AC Houghton had put in his entire life to, to amass that fortune that he did, you know, that was his way of kind of saying, Hey, I've made it. And, 
you know, when you've got guests coming into your home, the home that you're so proud of, don't you think you would want to talk about that and, and show that off and talk about, you know, how you were able to do this and where you picked out this from and all that, rather than saying, you know, all right, let's talk about the car crash again. So that's okay. I like to poke around, especially at a place like that. There's so many twists and turns. You're walking around, you know, recording EVPs. You can say, well, tell me about this room, AC. Why did you decide to design it this way? Or who, who made the decision to go with that molding? And, and you'll probably find that you'll get more reaction that way. You know, everybody's favorite subject to talk about is themselves and the choices that they've made. So I'd much rather talk about that than the way that I died. A hundred percent. Have you heard the theory that some of the stones there might be leading to some of the hauntings because they came from like, I think it's the the Hoosick Tunnel nearby. What do you think about that? Do you think that's a possibility? I think so. And I think that that, you know, that's something that living in the Bridgewater Triangle, we see that in a lot of the buildings that are haunted here is, you know, we'll say to people, well, what's the foundation of your home? They'll say, well, it's fieldstone or it's granite or it's, you know, so something like that. And you say, okay, well, let's trace where it might've come from. You find out it came from the quarry that's out in the Freetown State Forest. So right at the heart of the Bridgewater Triangle, they're, they're picking up the materials to build their homes out of. And I think the same thing can happen out there as well. If they're taking that, you know, building that tunnel and blasting away stone and they've got to do something with that stone, let's put it into these you know nice ornate homes out here. <laughs> that probably won't cause any problems. And I do think that it's probably fair to say that people might not have known at the time that that tunnel had those hauntings associated with it. And I think it's something that predates there being the tunnel there. You know, I think it's that land there. So they probably didn't know any better when they did it, but I'm sure that uh, some, some homes regret it now. Yeah. You know, years ago, uh, we investigated a residence that was built with lumber. Basically these people have been forcibly moved so that they could flood the town with a dam. Uh, and so a lot of the people kind of just took their houses down with the idea they would rebuild elsewhere. And then a lot of them did not. Uh, and so this house was constructed of other people's homes that had been moved because of this dam. And a lot of the, um, activity was because of that. And so, yeah, I think building materials, you don't think about it, but they can harbor something. What I also found interesting about the way that it was built is you've got this beautiful, ornate mansion that was constructed the way that the Houghtons wanted it to be. And then you have the Freemasons, when they took it over, they start constructing the the Masonic Lodge within the middle of it, which when you think about it, it's an odd blueprint. It's an odd floor plan to have it built this way. And now you're inserting everything that is associated with the Freemasons into the heart of this building. So you've got all of those, all the ceremony, all the things that go on now being um, amplified and recorded by these materials that are surrounding it completely. People always come to us thinking that, you know, buildings that had the Freemasons um, in them at some point are haunted because, you know, they called on spirits or whatever it is. And and I actually think it has more to do with just the ritual aspect of it and the emotions kind of put into what they were doing. You know, it's kind of the same idea anywhere where there's there's rituals happening. Like there is this kind of, you know, there's this major intention put into those. And a lot of them are the same thing over and over and over again. I kind of forgot that aspect of like what an interesting haunt it is that you have obviously this family that was there and everything they went through. And then on top of that, the Freemasons made it a lodge. And then on top of that, you've got these building materials from this local tunnel that's supposedly super haunted. And it's just got so many facets to it. It's really interesting. 
and I have a little bit of a theory as to why the Freemasons might draw out more of the Houghton activity as well, and, and why Free, you know, Masonic lodges have these ghosts associated with them. It's because Freemasons, you know, the belief in a higher power is the key central point of what they believe in, but they don't need to have all the religious dogma associated with it. So when somebody goes in to investigate a haunted location, they've got to kind of check their own personal religious beliefs at the door because some religions tell you that you shouldn't be talking to spirits. You shouldn't believe in spirits, that spirits are actually the devil trying to manipulate you. All these different belief systems that come into it can screw with the interaction a little bit. When you're dealing with Freemasons who just say, listen, we don't care how you believe as long as you believe, as long as you believe in something greater than yourself, I think that makes it a lot easier for this activity to come through. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way before. That's really interesting. Now, did you have any other experiences there while you were visiting? Well, when you were talking about the way that you make these connections with the spirits there, that is the place, the the Houghton Mansion is the place that actually changed me as an investigator because- Mm. I was somebody who was kind of impatient on investigations. I would go in guns blazing, you know, say, come on, ghost, come out, show us who killed you. How'd you die? When did you die? How long you been here? Like, I'm, I just want my questions answered and I want to kind of move on. And it was the Houghton mansion that, you know, for lack of a better term, taught me that ghosts are people too. Right. It was in the, in the lodge itself. There's a section in the back where they used to have secret ceremonies. And then over that section, there was another kind of secret area. And we were investigating in there. We were getting all kinds of noises. And, you know, if we did knocks, we would get knocks in response. So if we did the old shave and a haircut, we'd get the two bits back. And all this stuff was happening. We stood there and started to watch shadow figures emerge and start walking down the hallway to the point where at one point we're watching a procession of them walk right in front of our eyes down the hallway. And that alone was kind of, you know, mind blowing because that was the most intense shadow activity I'd had to that point. But a little bit later on in the evening, there was one shadow way down at the end of the hall by itself. And we were kind of calling him down. And over the course of a a good amount of time, we finally got him to come down and stand in front of us. So we're seeing this shadow person standing right before our eyes. There was myself and about four other people. And I held my hand out and this shadow person actually grabbed my hand wrapped its hand around my hand and and began pumping my arm up and down in a handshake motion. So I I shook hands with the shadow person. That is intense. It really was the most intense thing that's ever happened to me in an investigation because I just started crying. I couldn't help it. Like the tears just started coming out of my eyes because I realized like all of this stuff that I've been chasing around, I knew that it was real. I knew the activity was real, but I didn't realize the humanity behind it. And and I went downstairs and everybody could tell something had happened to me. And and I had to make the decision. Do I tell people about what happened to me? Because they're not going to believe me. And this is, to this point, I'd done a bunch of events, but I'd never been the person to have the personal experience. I didn't want to be because I, I knew people would think I was just making it up because I want to sell tickets to the next event. I was really nervous about saying anything. And I talked with a, a friend of ours, Frank Grace, the, the photographer. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, dude, you've got to tell people if it, if it affected you that much. And when I told everybody, you know, naturally everybody did believe me and was very supportive, but it changed who I was as a person and as an investigator going forward. 
I love that experience. That's insane. And I wish that would happen to me. Like I would love nothing more than to just very cordially greet a ghost. <laughs> like you would like a, a living person in front of you, like a handshake and a hello. Like I, I think that is amazing. And I think it also shows the power of the personal experience. I think a lot of us start doing this to collect evidence and we want to, you know, prove that ghosts exist or we want to have something crazy happen. Um, and then at some point, like your equipment and collecting, you know, evidence, I say with air quotes, becomes so much less important than these kind of personal experiences that solidify your theories and your thoughts and, and again, bring humanity to your experiences and, and to these these spirits. And I think it it makes the more passionate type investigators like once you make that shift. And so it sounds like that was that moment for you. Oh, for sure. And it and it put a thought into my head that I'm sure that you've had in your head many times in your investigations too, where I thought to myself, maybe I should stop doing this and just leave them alone. Mm. But then, you know, you realize that they are reaching out to you because they do have something to say and that you can be the conduit for that. You know, obviously there are some spirits in some places that that don't want to interact. And so they just choose not to. But um, I, I realized there that, you know, to do this now going forward, I was that person. I got into this with that idea of I'm going to be the person that's going to catch the evidence. It's going to prove to the world that ghosts are real. And then uh, that was the night that made me realize that, you know, it's not about that. It's about bringing people to where they can have a one-on-one -on -one experience to either, you know, help them believe something they weren't open to before or to solidify that belief that they always had but needed the proof. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I love that. And, you know, it's, it, it is, you know, to your point of kind of thinking for a moment, should we leave them alone? You know, you have to kind of instill like free will and free thought on them. Like they will tell you if they want you to leave them alone, but if they would like to interact with you, they will. It's just like any living person standing right in front of you. And how many people do ignore them, <laughs> you know, and that's why there's people like us who do at least try to reach out. Uh, and in your case, actually shake their hand. Yeah. And what I found to be kind of the, the lasting thing that stuck with me is that feeling of, there was no difference between me and whatever the thing was that was shaking my hand. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in some cases you look at these stories that you hear and people will tell you, well, I saw their shadow figure and it's, I smelled sulfur. So it must've been a demon or, oh. you know, you hear all these characterizations that people have that experience gave me enough of an up close experience that I can say that I just, I feel comfortable around these entities that they really are just another person. And I don't need to start to worry about all these, uh, you know, maybe, maybe some of these manifestations are other things, but from that point on, I always kind of looked at everything as being, you know, just like me and thinking about it that way has changed the way that I ask the questions. It's changed the way that I try to get interaction and it's made me feel better when I leave each location that I, I hopefully at the very least gave them some entertainment for the night. Yeah, seriously. Well, I'm sure you did. And I love that. So now, on that note, tell us where people can find you. What is Tim Weisberg up to these days? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm always uh, talking about the paranormal somewhere or other, but my home base is the Spooky South Coast radio show and podcast, which 
Uh, you can get anywhere podcasts are found. Uh, I have my own network, the Midnight FM network, uh, midnight.fm, where I do a show on Friday nights called Midnight Society. And uh, basically, you know, for me, it's all about any opportunity I can have to talk about this stuff. So sometimes I might work behind the scenes on things. Sometimes I might be uh, in front of the camera on some things. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm always looking for a way to make these stories kind of more palatable for people and, and, and to make it so that they realize that when they do have something strange happen to them, it's, it's okay. It's the, the paranormal is actually kind of normal. Yeah. Well, um, I thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to talk to you. And um, yeah, as always, I, I, I super appreciate you, Tim. You are an awesome person. And everyone out there, I, uh, I highly recommend you uh, seek Tim out if you are not familiar with him already. Um, like I said, I was a Tim fan well before I was ever on television. Uh, I was listening to Spooky South Coast way back in the day in California. So it, definitely well worth the seeking out of Mr. Weisberg. So uh, thank you, sir. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you. And thank you for all your support over the years. Houghton Mansion has become that empty mansion in the neighborhood that kids ride their bicycles by quickly, wondering what could be lurking inside. It's the stuff of legends and lore and most assuredly haunted. But I think it stands as a reminder of something else, a lesson each of us could take stock in. The realization that you can be on top of the world, you can have every part of your beautiful life meticulously planned and accounted for, but one moment can derail it all horribly. Never forget that. Always live life to its fullest because you never know when a dark hour may be lurking ahead. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is hosted and written by me, Amy Bruni, with additional research by Taylor Hagedorn and Cassandra Day Alba. This show is edited and produced by Rima Elkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Learn more about this show over at grimandmild.com. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 